We've been talking about Pentecost because we're in the midst of the counting of the Omer. And those of you who are here for the first time, and it is the, the Jewish period between Pesach and Shavuot. And um, this is where we talk about the infilling of the Spirit. And so we're, we are in our own preparation is what we've been doing for the past few weeks. How do we prepare? How do we get to the point where Pentecost is something real for us? And we've been talking about what the heck is Pentecost in the first place. What is this thing that we call the infilling of the Spirit? We look at Acts 2, and we see the, all the disciples, the followers of Jesus, together in one room, and a wind rushes through, and tongues as of fire appear over each head. And there's a power, and there's a boldness, there's an infilling that happens at that moment. And it's a huge contrast to where they were at Calvary. It's a huge contrast to where they were when Jesus died. And even at the resurrection, they didn't recognize him when they first saw him. So what the scripture is pointing to is a becoming. Last week we called it a gradual Pentecost. There's a gradual coming to this. To us it sounds like this infilling is just passive on our part. We're sitting there and at a certain moment the spirit comes and it falls on us. But what we're seeing here is something quite different. What we're seeing here is an active, even muscular process toward an awareness that realizes that it's not that the Spirit is being withheld until a given time when it flows, but that the Spirit is always there. Where else could God be but everywhere, every when? And so what it is, Pentecost, is this return to unity for us, this return to the awareness that we are actually present to and aware of spirit in this place, spirit right now. And so this is what we've been looking at for the past few weeks. How is it that we prepare? How is it that we become more and more aware and return to this deeper level of connection with God? And the Jews give us this motif, this, uh, I guess it's a, a symbolic framework or shape to the journey. Because they understand that at Passover, what they call Pesach, which is the commemoration of the exodus from Egypt, that was a physical liberation. But at the time, 50 days later, at Shavuot, or the festival of weeks, this is a spiritual liberation. They celebrate the giving of the law. So even though the people left physically out of Egypt, they were still under the thrall of that culture, of that mindset, of that way of living life as slaves in a foreign culture. But at Sinai, when they're given the law, something changes. This ragtag group of people is now galvanized into a country, galvanized into a nation. They have purpose. They have meaning. They have something that is intrinsically theirs with God at their head. And so this is their spiritual liberation. And Jesus talks about the same thing. He really hammers it home with Nicodemus in John 3, where he's talking about the difference between being baptized or born of the flesh and born of the spirit, born of water and born of spirit. And until and unless someone is born of the spirit, they can't see this kingdom that he was trying to get across to us. And so Jesus is making this connection to the shape of this journey between a physical liberation. When the people were called, when Jesus called someone into his fellowship, that was their move from one physical set of circumstances to another. But it's not until Pentecost when they're spiritually liberated. And then everything that Jesus said that they could do, they started doing. They didn't get it up till then. What is the shape? How does that shape correspond to our journeys? That's what we want to explore. That's what we want to find out. 
And what I wanted to do this morning was take it a little bit deeper. And this is a, I guess a concept, you could call it a concept. It's a way of approaching the spiritual life that was really difficult for me. And I would imagine it's going to be difficult for you because it's difficult for everyone. This idea of moving in the opposite direction that we think we're supposed to move in terms of our spiritual growth, our spiritual ascension, whatever you want to call it, this, this getting to know Jesus and Father better through the way of Jesus. And so we talked last week just briefly about the stages of spiritual growth, and I think it's good to revisit that. Because in these stages, that they're arbitrary, and the ones that I like best come from Scott Peck. He has four stages of spiritual growth. But they have to do with where we place our identity. And this is so vitally important, because our spiritual journey really is about identity, who we think we are and who, we are, who we've experienced ourselves to be in relationship to God, to ultimate reality. And so this first stage is identity with self. It is a preoccupation with supplying all the physical needs that we have as human beings. And so everything we do and every choice we made is geared toward that. Not necessarily selfishness in the way that we think of selfishness or self-centeredness, but it is a preoccupation with supplying our needs and doing it ourselves. So all the planning and all the scheming and all the machinations or anything we've got to do to get what we need is part of that first stage. When you move from first stage to second stage, your, your identity moves out broader. And so it moves from self to the tribe. It becomes tribal. It moves to the group, whatever group that you swear allegiance to. So if this is in a religious setting, it's the church that you belong to, the denomination you belong to, the belief system that you ascribe to. But it could be a lot of things, you know. It could be a political party. How many people really have sold that? This is where you drink the Kool-Aid, right? So you drink the Kool-Aid for the, uh, the, the party of your choice. The nation that you were born into, maybe it's nationalism that is your tribe. Maybe it's a football team that's your tribe. It can really be anything. But our identity moves out and now becomes part of the group. Instead of ourselves being our salvation, ourselves being our provider, now the group becomes the provider. And we will do almost anything to preserve that group, to preserve the integrity of that belief system. That's why people in stage two are really difficult to have conversations with, you know, because they are right and everyone else has to be wrong in order for this thing to work, for the walls of that particular fortress to be impregnable and to feel safe, then we have to be right at the expense of everyone else. So there is a certain disconnect and intolerance there that's kind of baked into the cake but then what happens either intentionally or sometimes catastrophically is that that group system breaks down one way or another. Maybe it's a trauma in life. Maybe it's something that, that occurs that allows the person to realize that what they have been subscribing to is not enough to get them through these changes, these, these traumas in life. Or maybe there was some sort of felt need, or what my old pastor used to call divine dissatisfaction. I love that. Divine dissatisfaction. A call to something deeper, so that intentionally the person starts to move into a new direction. But stage three is marked by a loss of identity. Who am I now? What am I a part of now? What am I, what am I doing now? It's a feeling of disorientation and disturbance. It's a feeling of loss. This is what the followers experienced at the Calvary moment. At Calvary, everything that they had been, all that group, stage two stuff with Jesus, suddenly gone on the cross. What to do? What do we do now? 
That period between Calvary and Pentecost is stage three territory. And then, if you press through, because stage three is uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable enough that some people will double down and go back to stage two or even stage one, get bitter, you know, get jaded about it, and go back. Or you can press through, as the followers of Jesus did, to that Pentecost moment that pops you into stage four. And it may not be a pop. Like I said, it can be gradual. But you suddenly realize that your identity now has broadened to include everyone and everything. It's not us and them anymore in a stage two tribal sense. It is now truly a citizen of the universe, I guess. You feel connection with everyone, whether you know them or not, whether you even like them or not. But your circumstances, new ideas coming at you, don't offend and don't throw you into negative territory so quickly. You can at least sit down and embrace them long enough to find out what's going on. So this movement from stage one to stage four is, again, it's arbitrary, but it it matches the flow, the shape of the journey that we see in the New Testament. And it matches the shape of our lives as well. I mean, think about your lives. Many of you who come to the effect are right in that stage three place because we're a little bit out of the box. We don't give you hard walls like a stage two group would. We are here as a launching pad for stage four. And so if you think about your lives, you can see, yes, that shape was something that I've experienced as well. And Jesus talks about this. Let's, let's take a look at uh, Matthew 16. And it's in your handouts, or it's going to be up on the screen in a second. Look at that, how fast he is. So Matthew 16, starting at verse 24, here's Jesus saying to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross, And follow me. So, you know, we've taken that line and run with it and say, oh, okay, we're supposed to suffer as Jesus suffered. And this was taken absolutely literally. So by the Middle Ages, people were whipping themselves, self-flagellation, and they were wearing, you know, all sorts of things that would keep them in pain, hair shirts and and, uh, and different types of, of, you know, utilities. Because they thought, the more I'm in pain, the more I'm suffering, the closer I am to Jesus. I'm literally picking up my cross. This is not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a death of what you thought you were. That self that you have so carefully cultivated through stage one and stage two, if you're not willing to lay that down, then what? He goes on and he says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is Jesus talking about breaking down our over-identification with self. We have to have a sense of self. There's nothing wrong with that. It's the over-identification with self. We think that voice in our head is us. We think that's who we are. We think our accomplishments and our attributes and, and, and everything that we have accomplished is who we are. That's the problem because that shelves off the ability to go deeper, to see where identity can really go. But as I said, this isn't just about selfishness because there are legitimate concerns and things that we need to deal with. Take a look at Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink or for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life 
worth more than God, than food, than the body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil, they don't spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory himself was clothed like one of these. So here are legitimate concerns that we have, right? We need these things. Later on at the end of the chapter, Jesus acknowledged, your father knows you need these things. Don't worry about it. But don't be like the Gentiles who obsess after these things. And Gentiles there, the word that was used for Gentiles to describe someone who was not Jewish, literally means someone who is not of our camp. It's a different ethnicity, different tribe. In other words, they don't know our God. That's really the key. Don't obsess over these things like those who don't know our God. The beneficence of our God, the provision of our God. These are things we all need. Of course we need them. But are we overly worried? Are we overly obsessed? Are we constantly grinding? We're going to spend most of our waking hours working for these things that we need, right? But so do the birds. Think of the analogy that Jesus used with the birds. Yeah, they don't sow, they don't, they don't reap, they don't store up in barns, but their entire waking life is about getting food, isn't it? And doing the things that they need to in order to reproduce and, and do all... But what they don't do is worry about something that's not present to them. As they're working, as hard as they work, their head, the little heads are right where their feet are. Right? They're thinking about what they're doing at the moment so that they're not completely getting stressed out about the 30,000 foot view that we're constantly keeping in our heads instead of just doing the next thing. There's a whole different attitude toward life. Jesus is saying, if you over-identify with what you need, this is what's going to happen to you. So back up. See how we can let go of this over-identification with self, still do the things we need to do. And then even as your identity moves outward into the tribe, take a look at Matthew 5 at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, those who don't know our God, do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This idea of loving your neighbors and hating your enemy is not biblical. You won't find it in the written text. It was a teaching of the rabbis, a teaching of the Pharisees, the rabbinical sect of Judaism. They were so tribal in their thinking. They were so nationalistic in their thought that everything occurred within the scope of Judaism. This was their tribe. Love your tribe. Hate those outside the tribe. Protect, and, and hate means to prefer less. It can mean that, at least, in, in Aramaic and Hebrew. So it, it doesn't necessarily mean a malicious hate, but it, there is definitely a, an us and them, right? We are the chosen. 
We're the ones that need to stick together. Let all those other guys fend for themselves and you know, keep them at arm's length. And Jesus is saying, no, love your neighbor and love your enemy. Can you do that? Because as soon as your identity moves beyond self and into tribe and then beyond tribe and into the enemy territory, into the enemy camp, something absolutely fundamental is changing in you at each one of those turns. For us to suddenly be able to embrace those who are not like us, an enemy, as we said so many times, is just someone that we don't understand, someone who's not like us, someone that we don't have any feelings of affection or connection with and for. Can we still extend to them what we extend to our own family, our friends, our tribe? This is what is breaking us through. This over-identification with the tribe can foster the hate of the enemy. Jesus is trying to get us to see. And then he's saying, but wait a minute, there's more. All right? Take a look at Luke 14. In Matthew 5, he's saying, love your tribe and love the enemy. But in Luke 14, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What is he doing now? He's even moving further and saying, look, I told you to love your neighbor, love your tribe, and love the enemy too, which takes you a whole heck of a lot of real estate away from where you were. But now I'm telling you, even if you over-identify with your tribe and hate, remember to prefer less, if you can't, See that your identity does not lie just in the group, even in your own family. Then you won't be able to graduate to where I'm going. You can't follow me where I'm going. There is a deeper level of understanding that even transcends family, transcends our own tribe. Jesus is really putting the pedal to the metal here. You've got to see this. What he's doing, he is pushing, 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 especially in that culture, in that ancient world, where community was everything, where the individual only existed to serve the community, where family was tantamount to survival. To be outside the family was to, was to die, literally, in that culture, in that subsistence-level culture. Jesus is saying something huge here that is really easy for us to miss or to over-spiritualize and say, look, he's talking about where we place our very identity can we keep moving it forward, expanding it outward, breaking down this identity with self, with tribe, from within and also from without, in our attitudes and also in our actions towards others? And as we said, it's got to happen if we're going to get to stage four. If we're going to have our Pentecost moment, we've got to make this happen. It can happen by intention, where you can willingly move yourself in these directions, consciously move yourself in these directions, or it can happen by catastrophe. We had, there's this great article that we read a few months ago where someone said that he wished he could have been a contemplative by intention, but really he was a contemplative by catastrophe. Stuff in his life just broke him down until he had to turn and face something new because what he was doing, he had to acknowledge, wasn't working. He had to admit he was powerless and his life was unmanageable. He got to that point. We all need to get there. 
Do we want to wait until it's by catastrophe, or do we want to start working on it now by intention? And of course, sometimes it's both. And so all of that is there as well. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. He's trying so hard to get us to see what is going on here. I want you to think for just a second. Think about, think about these relationships in your life. Think about how it's our choice to answer the call or not. It's our choice. Life is going to keep providing them. How do we answer the call? What is this going to look like practically? I mean, it's easy to say these things. Let go of yourself. What does that really mean? How are we going to break this down? The truth of the matter is that we're all pleasure-seeking missiles. I know I've said this in here before. You know what a heat-seeking missile is, right? Well, human beings are pleasure-seeking missiles. There's nothing wrong with that. We all seek pleasure and avoid pain. If we didn't do that, the species would not continue. It's okay. The question is, what do we take pleasure in? Because that's going to determine whether this characteristic, human characteristic, is healthy or not. What are we actually seeking? What are we taking pleasure in? That's the really key here. And so our spiritual journey, our spiritual progress, I suppose, could be looked at as a refining of our pleasure centers. What are we taking pleasure in? You know, this pleasure, this sense of security in ourselves that we're trying to expand to the tribe and we're trying to expand to all, how do we get it out there? There's a Chinese proverb that I think is just perfect. I I put it in your handouts. To suffer yourself when all under heaven suffer, to enjoy only when all under heaven enjoy. This sense of our pleasure can move to the place where it's, we're only feeling that connection. We're only taking pleasure when everyone else can. It's no longer us and them. It's all under heaven. We see our pleasure as intimately tied, inextricably tied to the others. And not just in our tribe, but everywhere. This is a huge connection, a huge move. And it's very difficult for us Because we associate pleasure with positive emotions, don't we? That good feeling that we have, that's pleasure to us. And we crave those emotional highs so much, even in our spirituality. We want to feel close to God. And so we start to make those emotions, those good feelings, a litmus test, a proof that we are actually close to God. But this only deepens our identity with ourselves and doesn't move us in the direction that we want to go. It deepens our concern with ourselves, how we're feeling at the time. And Jesus is trying to take us in another direction. There was a great uh, little, he calls them meditations from Richard Rohr. And I wanted to read a portion of it, because I think he's on to something here. And it's called the mirroring gaze. It's a way of looking at our relationships and our love in a different way. He says that infants see themselves mirrored in their caregiver's eyes. Babies and children who receive loving mirroring and modeling can grow into adults capable of eye-thou relationships, tenderness, and closeness with other beings and with God. James Finley, one of uh, his core faculty members, sees that the brain activity shown by parts of the brain actually light up during moments when a baby and a parent are mirroring each other 
as similar to what happens in the exchange of divine and human gazes. When God gazes at us and we gaze at God, we light up. And God lights up with joy at being recognized by the one that God created in God's own image and likeness for the very sake of this recognition. It's a state of visceral, emotional, intimate communion, a tender recognition of oneness that we might rest in it, resting in us, resting in this communion in each other, as each other, through each other, beyond each other, in this endless interconnectedness of life itself, of love. I think we can get that. There's that, that feeling of emotional connection. As we mirror each other, as we, we, we light up, you know, both inside and outside, we can feel that. You know, we want that, that reciprocal feeling that happens in such relationships and such love relationships. But healthy relationships and spirituality lead us beyond the human level of feeling special and loved to allow this same divine mirroring with every living thing. It's not just people who love you that you can return the gaze to, but it is the way that you see everything the grasshopper in the grass, the flower on the bush, the blue sky, even the would-be enemy. What we're trying to get to here is love is not the emotion itself. We talked about this often. Love is not the emotion itself because you can love without emotion or you could never love the enemy, right? Love is not good behavior toward another because you can do good behavior with all sorts of reasons that are not lovely. So if love is not the emotion or the behavior, what is it? And Thomas Merton comes to our rescue and says, what, the lo- what love really is, is identification with the beloved. It is seeing ourselves as one with, that they are a part of us and we of them. That there is a blurring of the lines between us. And from that identification flows the behavior as if it were to ourself because they are our other self. And then eventually the feelings of affection that follow but it moves in that flow, right? And so instead of chasing the emotion, we're looking for that identification. We're looking for that expansion of the sense of who we are, the connection with each other. Because if we don't do that, then we're just chasing the emotional high. We're chasing the emotional reward. And that's a different thing. He writes, the mirror is without ego and without mind. Everything is revealed as it really is. There's no discriminating mind or self-consciousness on the part of the mirror, right? An actual mirror. If something comes, the mirror reflects it. If the object object moves on, the mirror lets it move on. The mirror is always empty of itself and therefore able to receive the other. The mirror has no preconditions for entry or acceptance. It receives and reflects back what is there. Nothing more, nothing less. The mirror is the perfect lover and the perfect contemplative. If we are to be a continuation of God's way of seeing, we must, first of all, be mirrors. We must be no thing so that we can receive something. To love demands a transformation of consciousness, a transformation that has been the goal of all saints. And the transformation of consciousness is this. We must be liberated from ourselves which is done by somehow becoming the other. Think of Paul's famous, I live no longer, not I, but with the life of Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20. This is not fantastic religious poetry. It is the heart of the experience of human and divine love. What we allow ourselves to see 
is what we eventually become. I told you this was going to be weird this morning, right? This is what I'm talking about. You read something like that, what is he talking about? What? You know, this violates everything we think about a loving relationship. If someone comes into my reflection, I'm loving them, and, and, but they just move on, and that, that's somehow okay, aren't I going to miss them? Isn't there going to be some sort of grieving that goes on? There is a fascinating group of people that live in the Andaman Sea, which is right off the coast of, of uh, Thailand, Burma. What are the new names? Myanmar, and what, they keep changing names over there. When the big earthquake hit, guys, getting to be 15 years ago, um, you know, off uh, Sumatra there, and, um, and just devastated the coast of Thailand, these people called the Mokan, otherwise known as sea gypsies, didn't lose a single person. They spend at least half their time at sea. They're like truly amphibious. They're, 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 their children learn how to swim before they learn how to walk. Their hearts are in such a condition that they can hold their breath three to four minutes sometimes. So they can do deep diving for sea, shellfish and other things. They're truly amazing people. They can read the ocean and so on and so forth. Well, these people came into media attention because they were able to read the sea and either go to higher ground if they were on the land or go to deeper ocean if they were in their boats, and they were unaffected by the tsunami that hit. But what they found as they started looking at these people and, and trying to interact with them, these people had no words in their language for thank you. They had no word for thank you. They had no word for want. They had no word for when. They had no word for hello, no word for goodbye. I want you to think about that. A people that have no words in their vocabulary, in their consciousness, for want or thank you, which means that there are no personal property rights, right? Everything is everyone's. It is automatically shared. I don't say thank you to you because you gave me something, or I, you know, and, and I don't talk about wanting something. It's just all connected. They don't have a word for when, which means... They don't have a consciousness of the passage of time. They don't keep birthdays. They don't know when they were born. It's all now. It's always now. They don't say hello and they don't say goodbye. When you leave, you just leave. And when you come back, you're back again. And there's no celebration. Doesn't it seem weird? I mean, it just seems somehow subhuman. But they're acting as these mirrors because they, as a people, are focused on here and now and the face that is right in front of them here and now is the most important face in their life until another face comes in. It's hard to imagine a life like that. But this is where I think Jesus is trying to get us. Like those birds, he said. Be like the birds. Yeah, they're working their little tails off. But it's all now. They're not worried about tomorrow. They're not worried about what they store up. They eat it. It's good. And then they go to sleep, and they get up, and they do it again. Now, we're more complex than that. Our life is more complex than that. I realize that this is about balance. But if we don't understand what one side of this coin looks like, then we are going to over-identify with the other side, and we want to find this balance. You know, In our culture, isn't there that line? I don't know who said it. Was it Richard Bach or someone? You know, If you love someone or you love something, set it free. And if it returns to you, it's yours. And if it doesn't, it never was. It's the same idea. Can our love for another person be so pure that it allows them to be completely free? We're not codependently hanging on to them. We don't need them to do this for us. But that we have identified so strongly with each other that we can allow them 
to move about their lives as they need to. Think about that in your life. Is there a relationship? Or what is the relationship in your life that was most mirror-like? That you were allowing the other person to be really free. You know, significant other relationships, boyfriend and girlfriend, it's really hard to do that, isn't it? So much is expected in those kind of relationships, from physical provision to love and, and, and connection, all of that stuff. It's hard to do it. How about a child completely dependent on you, not really able to give you anything back except dirty diapers, but you love that kid, right? Can you do that? And even more importantly, can you do that when they become a teenager? Now, if you can do that, and you're really doing something... But my point is this. Is it a friend? Is it a coworker? Maybe it's a complete stranger that you met that you were able to have an exchange with that was completely pure because they came into your life, some kind of genuine exchange took place, and they left again. But you were moved to have that exchange. You were moved to give what you could at the moment. Do you have a relationship? Can you see something in your life that looks like what Jesus is talking about. This is hard enough with people, but I think it might even be harder with God. How do we break down our identity with ourselves as we're trying to approach unseen God? How How do we do that? What does that look like? To take you a little bit further down the rabbit hole, I wanted to read you just another portion from a book called The Solace of Fierce Landscapes. And this is where Belden Lane is trying to get us to understand something about desert spirituality, these, these desert fathers and mothers who went out into these harsh landscapes to try to find what it was that this relationship was all about. And as he says here, and I love this line, he says, God cannot be had if this means laying hold of God by way of concept, language, or experience. God is ultimately beyond human comprehension. John Cassian defined contemplative prayer as an imperfect yet astonished gaze at God's ungraspable nature, something hidden finally from human sight. Other teachers in the contemplative traditions also talk about loving God with a naked intent, completely apart from any of God's attributes or benefits. God is to be entered into and loved, but never an object to be grasped or understood. In the end, we are no more able to possess God than we are able to possess ourselves. It's only as we abandon every effort to control God by experiencing God, relinquishing even the grasping self, always anxious to add deity to its store of personal acquisitions, that the mystery of meeting God beyond experience ever becomes possible. Meeting God beyond experience? See, this is where the language starts to fail us. But even if all of these words aren't making complete sense, look where it's pointing. In the tribal sense, we want to hold on to God. It's our God, you know? We have a flag, we have a banner for our God. And our God is going to provide for us. That's the tribal understanding. But what happens if we let go of all that? And we're trying to meet God without even the sense of an experience, something that we had, but just an encounter that we let come into focus and back out again. In the practice of contemplation, one comes eventually to embrace 
letting go of everything one might have imagined as constituting ourselves. Our thoughts, our desires, our compulsive needs, joined in the silence of prayer to a God beyond knowing, I no longer have to scramble to sustain a fragile ego, but discern instead the source and ground of my being in the fierce landscape of God alone. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Given this emphasis, the modern reader searching for new techniques of spiritual self-discovery. Does that sound familiar? Techniques of self-discovery. Ten ways to, you know, all that stuff that we see on the Internet. They will largely be disappointed in the desert tradition. Classical writers could not be more indifferent to the modern search for experiences of the sacred, okay, that enhance self-realization. They would never, in the private psychologizing way so familiar to contemporary spirituality, be anxious to add an encounter with God through contemplative prayer to their collection of previous meditative accomplishments. See where he's going with this? As if one could then say, been there, done that, to yet another personal success. The self is not realized in contemplative prayer. The self is a desert that one learns to ignore. Because the self is only realized in relinquishment. The more we hold on, the egoic holding on to what we think we are, the more who we really are in God eludes us. And I know this is it's, it's crazy, but just hang with me for one more paragraph. Having said this, however, and this is, this is important, it's important to note that the desert tradition never seeks the destruction of the self. Indeed, in early monastic terms, trying to live without a self is a temptation of its own, making the love of others impossible. We can't love each other if we don't have a sense of who we are, who is doing the loving in this life. And so that's not it. Again, we're talking about balance. In the life of prayer, I'm invited to realize my identity as a unique self-determination of the image of God, able to love others only because of being loved myself. That line that we say at the end of so many of our prayers here. The goal of the spiritual life, therefore, is an emptying of the ego that opens to one being more fully possessed by a God whom one has never lacked, but who is known far more intimately in the joining through prayer of God and the self. So again, it's about balance. We're not eradicating self. We're balancing self with the connection that is so deep that it changes the very way that we pray. Think about your prayer life. Think about how you pray. How much time do you spend in petition to God, asking God for things, asking God to change your circumstances, change this, help me with that, or just give me a sense of who you are? The Jews had a formula for prayer that was three parts in equal measure. It was prayer, praise, petition, and thanksgiving. Notice there's only one-third petition asking for things. The rest of the time you're praising and thanking That's a pretty good ratio. But so many of our prayers are 100% petition. We're always asking for things, usually for ourselves, but then for others. What is that? Identification with self, identification with the tribe. How about if just in our prayer life, we could open up the way that we pray so that it takes us beyond that over-identification with self and with the tribe? How much time do we spend in that petitioning? The ancient church saw this and saw this danger. They called them spiritual consolations. 
And they realize that the spiritual consolation is the feeling of this emotional closeness with God that we do crave. Was there mainly for the newcomers? It's kind of like the pink cloud in recovery that some of you are familiar with. It was something that was there to help us get through those early stages, kind of like a honeymoon. And then it would move into the desolations. And the real maturity of the follower, the real maturity of the spiritual adherent, was to continue the program through the unfelt portions of their spiritual life. I like to tell this story, and I'm getting close to time here, but the story of a young monk who was so on fire for God that he literally levitated. He would just rise above all the brothers in the chapel. And this is happening over and over and over again. Finally, the abbot just said, you, get down here, join your brothers and grow up. You know, It's time to get down and get on with your work. That's so different than what we think about and how we, how we even imagine that relationships are supposed to be. Can we look at them in a different way? Can we move with them in a different direction? There's a need, obviously, for ourselves. There's a need for the tribe. But we have to move beyond that. Jesus is pointing us in directions that even go further than this. There's one scene where he's talking to the Sadducees and who don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and so they're making fun of him. They say there's, a, there's a woman who had to marry seven brothers in succession, according to Jewish law, and they all died, and she died. So in the next life, in the Allah whose wife will she be? You know, they think they really got him. You know, and he says, you don't understand the way this works. In the Olam in the next life, no one is given in marriage, but will be like the angels in heaven. And you've got to think, what? We're not going to pair off anymore? I'm not going to be married to Marion anymore? Think about your most valued personal relationships. Jesus is pointing to a connection, to an identification that is so complete that we don't pair off into these special individual relationships. I don't know about you, but that sounds really weird. I don't even think I want that. I like my special relationships. Don't you? I mean, what is he pointing to? Here's the good news. In this life, we don't have to worry about that. In this life, as long as we're drawing breath, as long as we're in our human suits, we're going to have to have a sense of self, and we're going to have to have special relationships because we can only be at one place at one time, right? We can't be everywhere all the time. And so what Jesus is talking about is there is going to be a time when we are so identified with everyone that we don't need these kinds of pairings, these kind of best friends. But right now, living between heaven and earth, what we want to do is create the balance. Yes, we have our, our special relationships. Yes, we have our husbands and wives. Yes, we have our children and our closest friends, and that's beautiful. But at the same time, we can transcend all those, and we can see those on the outskirts, at the perimeter of our lives, just as meaningfully, just as important to us, in terms of our willingness to go there, to move with them, to connect with them. There's this idea in Eastern traditions that says, you know, at, in the next life we return to the ocean like a, like a drop returning to the water. But Rumi, this, the Sufi poet, says, you're not just the drop in the ocean, you're the entire ocean in the drop. That's more where Jesus is going with this. That everything can be contained in us and we can be contained in everything. This is 
I believe the Pentecost moment. This is what I believe that at that moment of the infilling, however you want to state it, imagine it, we become this citizen of everything, connected to everything. We see how this works, and we see the spirit in everything that we do, in every choice, in every relationship, and every word that we utter. And it changes our choices, and it changes our attitudes, and it changes our experience of our lives. And just because I can state that to you, I'm telling you, it is hard. Because the self, the ego, dies hard. <laughs> it doesn't want to go away. And for me, trying to even get to the point that I can state this to you with conviction was like a street fight. It was like urban warfare, house by house and block by block, trying to get to a place where I could even say that this is true. And I do experience it more, but it's been difficult to get there. I wanted to close, I've been closing with the journal entries from 20 to 25 years ago when all of this stuff was actually happening in real time to me. And I wanted to read you just one more and see if this kind of illustrates the difficulty that we face as we're trying to do this. But the, the possibility of having it done is so immense. This one's dated Saturday. <clears throat> This is October 30th, 1993, at 5.25 p.m. Yes, I'm a little OCD. It all begins to sort itself out, slowly. So slowly, like the hands of a clock, that I'm not aware of progression as long as I stare and try to see. But if I look away long enough and then turn back, there it is, elapsed time, perceived progression. It's uncanny, almost diabolical, how difficult it is to grasp this concept and once grasped, to hold on and not fall back on old ways. To really become one with the realization that the very effort applied to the task is proof that the essential revelation has not even been addressed. Because the thought, the realization, the revelation is that there's nothing to do. Nothing that has to be done. Nothing I could do if I tried that would make any essential difference to God. In fact, all my efforts are irrelevant at best and maybe an insult at worst. Acts of ignorant arrogance. But, but, but all the buts come popping up in my resistant conditioned mind. How can this possibly be? In a life and world and philosophy so geared toward action and accomplishment, my whole life has been based on activity. What I can do. I identify myself with my talents and accomplishments. They are who I am or was. Now in the church, I hear that it's all about grace, that I must die to myself, let Christ live in me. But nobody tells me what this means. At the same time, the church says that faith without works is dead. There are all those lists of do's and don'ts and eternal fire promised for those don'ters, good cop, bad cop. But the bad cop I can understand and accept. These rules, these things to do, keep my pride and self-worth intact because they imply that I'm still at least partially in control. There are things with which to comply and I will be rewarded or punished according to my performance and I look around and I see 2,000 years of Christian tradition largely based on this premise. And yet, when all the brush is cleared away, this truth alone is left standing. There's nothing to do Am I making way too much of this? Maybe. But just like the scientific theories of chaos, very small differences in input yield huge differences in output. 
In this case, the difference between living fully in God's presence and merely coming in twice a week to sweep the floor around his feet. There's nothing to do. I'm beginning to see. All is complete. I simply identify myself with the truth or I do not. There's no middle ground. All my well-intentioned activity only pulls me away from the center, the place of silence and truth. All my activity feeds the self-awareness and self-consciousness that identifies me with something other than God. The effort itself is prideful, distracting, and arrogant until, until it is effortless until all my efforts flow effortlessly out of my silence, God's silence, they are simply something less than worthless. Until all my activity is the result of God's presence and not the proof of its purchase, it's a gathering of the wind, the clanging gong, the crashing cymbal. Let my measurement of unexpended effort be my guide toward the center. Let my lack of self-consciousness be the compass pointing toward full identification with you, Lord. Let nothing come between us, not even faith. For as soon as I believe in faith, I no longer believe in you. As soon as my works determine the measure of my faith, I believe in myself. Sympathy, compassion, fortitude, perseverance, dedication are not synonyms for kingdom. They are the results of its realization in my life. There is no other way. I go to the Father through the Son. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I never realized how light. And it's getting lighter all the time. Let's pray. Father, this is really difficult stuff. And I pray for anyone who is completely confused by everything that was just said that the simplicity of one point can come through, that you would help us to see that we can be completely identified in you, one with you, in such a way that the fear starts to drop off, that we can choose not out of fear anymore for what we lack, but out of love, out of the infinite flowing of your center. Help us to make choices to intentionally go there, to intentionally change our habits and prayer and behavior that will break down everything that needs to be broken down so we can just be completely transparent to you and to each other. That's what we want, Father. Transparency, openness, vulnerability, dependence in the face of all of our hard work. Help us balance, Father. That's what we need more than anything. And all through this, thank you for everything that you are and everything that you continue to give us every single moment. Never let us forget. We can only do any of this. We can only love it all because you did it first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, everyone. Let's stand.